Start again, start again, begin. Start again. I was so blessed with just wonderful people. Even though my my personal like home life was a mess, there were these angels that just kept appearing. It were just wonderful. Say goodbye to our old life. It's a brand I forget the year of this car, but I remember it was an Audi 100 LS. It was, had Michigan rust on the bottom and stuff. You know, you could see through the, the floor and in places. And I, I just put all my belongings, you know, put my whole album collection in there and my stereo system and my instruments and drove out to California uh, riding on the axles all the way because the car was so loaded down. <laughs> I lost a muffler somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> It's almost like these these footprints were laid out in front of me, you know, and I was I was just as nervous and, and scared and and ill prepared as I was. I just I just put one foot in front of the other. And so I'm starting to say my goodbyes and I, I get one foot out the door, literally. And he says, So do you write lyrics? I said, Yeah. I had never written a lyric in my life. <laughs> so I'm taking pieces of that, stringing all those experiences together. Those things I didn't feel like I was worthy enough to tackle. Now, who am I to say I'm a, a writer? or to suggest that I had anything worthwhile to hear. Open book, open world We don't know what will come We just hope You're listening to Caterpillar Goo. I'm Rod Hayden. Hi, and I'm Flora. Hi, Flora. I just go by one name, like Madonna. Or Cher. Uh-huh. You're too young to remember Cher. You're right, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Well, today we're hearing from Steve Birch. Steve is a member of my my men's group, my men's circle. What's the men's circle? Well, next time we'll hear all about the formation of the men's circle. Clay Boykin is going to tell us all about that. It's a spiritual group of men who get together and speak openly and honestly from the heart. You know, be men. Really? Nothing about sports or... Drinking and I don't know. I thought that's what men do when when they get together. No, no sports. Some some fart jokes. Some you know low humor, sex jokes, but mostly spiritual stuff. I think that's pretty awesome. It I is. think there's space for men to be emotional and vulnerable, and be human. I feel like maybe maybe in your generation and prior generations, men were. Um, socialized to repress their emotions and not express it, hold, you know, what is it, man up, 
you know, stop crying. So it's good that there's space where you're able to, I don't know. Do you guys talk about your emotions? Do you cry? All the time. That's what real men do. I like how you worked in there about my generation, like you and I are to different generations. Uh, We are. You just mentioned at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question. Okay. Have you ever experienced um, synchronicity in your life? I have. I think my whole professional life is based on serendipity, being in the right place at the right time. I think my whole life is showing up showing up at the right moment for what the universe has in store for me. What about you? I think maybe I started noticing it more as I became more spiritual myself, believing in a a bigger force, I guess, in motion. And when you are connected to that force, either you notice the synchronicity existing or it just seems like there's so much of it, so many things that are connecting, connecting the dot. So maybe it was always there, but I started noticing that, I would say, maybe a decade ago when I started reading more books and connecting more to my inner light and um, positivity. I wouldn't say meditation, like sitting down in silence. My meditation would be different. My meditation would be trying to be more present, noticing nature, feeling the air or the smell I think that's my type of meditation. And the more I was present, as well as practice gratitude, that helped me, I think, open up to notice more synchronicities in my life. It has brought good things into my life, in my career, and my relationship, and lots of things with my children, with my self-esteem, with, with many things. It's been, it's been good. I think you and Steve should have, you should have interviewed Steve. The two of you could have bonded over all that stuff. No, I'll leave that up to you. His his story is full of moments of synchronicity when the right person or the right moment happened and his life took a, a turn he wasn't expecting at all. It's a pretty cool story. So here's Steve Birch. Enjoy. As a kid, I, re- I remember my... My earliest memory, my earliest really vivid memory, is is being in a in a basket under my my mother's grand piano in our living room, and she was a she was like the president of the chamber music society, and you know she was always having chamber music rehearsals and everything. So I was in this basket, and I looked over and to my right, and there were my mom's bare feet working the pedals and I could I could hear the dampers on the strings above me you know thunking on the strings and uh, and I looked out and and there were the uh, the string musicians like a, a cellist and a violist uh, you know in their folding chairs swaying with the music and, and I, I could I could smell the resin from the bows So music was, it was just always there. It wasn't, do you want to play an instrument? It's like, which instrument do you want to play? So I, uh, so I picked up the flute. Looked like an easy thing to carry. <laughs> I liked the way it sounded. And, um, 
because I saw these other kids lugging lugging tubas and and uh, euphoniums and stuff around. You know, I was I was pretty resolved that I was was going to be in the music business. I didn't know how, um, but I was just so drawn to it. And I at thirteen I started working in this college radio station. They were in the midst of an inventory, and I asked how I could help. And they gave me a broom <laughs> and, uh, and put me to work doing things that no one wanted to do, you know, just uh, helping them with inventory and emptying the waste baskets and stuff. Uh, but that changed really quickly. You know, if someone didn't show up for their show, I was on the air. And before I knew it, I was doing radio shows and teaching the new college students coming in how to run the equipment. And then when I got, I got older, I got into, like, you know, junior high and high school. And um, I was not working at the radio station anymore. Um, but I still wanted to meet all these people that were coming through town. First, I would, I would cold call all the hotels in town. Um, and ask for their rooms. You know, like uh, one of the people I wanted to get was Chick Corea. And, uh, and when he was in town doing a concert. And so I called around and, and at, just asked for his room at the Hyatt or whatever hotel it was. And his, his manager picked up and he, when he figured out, you know, what this was, I was just a kid who wanted to meet Chick. He gave the phone to Chick. And, uh, and so we talked for a minute. He said, so you come to the concert tonight? I said, yeah. He said, well, just, why don't you just come backstage? Said, okay. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's almost like these, these footprints were laid out in front of me. You know, and I was, I was just as nervous and, and scared and, and ill-prepared as I was. I just, I just put one foot in front of the other. And so I watched this concert. And when it was over, I, I went backstage, and there was just this crowd of people there. And they were all, um, you know, they were all getting autographs and taking pictures and people bringing in flowers and all kinds of things. And I'm, I'm pressed against the back wall, and the people start to part, and he points at me and says, Steve? So yeah. <laughs> he just, and he calls me in, so I go in the dressing room. And we, we sit on the backs of these folding chairs uh, next to a, a fruit bowl. And, uh, and we just, and I started, he he's just was so open with me, you know, so giving. And he, you know, he just says, so, so what's going on? I, I, you know, I noticed, or I heard that you, you wanted to go to New York. What do you want to, you know, is there anything you want to ask me about? And we just had this, like, probably half an hour conversation. Me and Chick Corea in his dressing room s sitting on the backs of the folding chairs. And it, it, was, it was like expanding my world, you know, to know that, that this person who I had been listening to and studying and, um, and admiring was just a guy, you know, and he, and he was accessible. And you know when it didn't work when I couldn't when I couldn't reach um, reach them at, at a hotel I'd call around call everyone, and um, and you know no one would have them staying they were probably under a different name or under someone else's name, uh, so what I would do in those cases is I would go to the afternoon of the concert I would go to the venue 
to the stage door, knowing that they would be offloading equipment onto the stage, you know, from the from the trucks. You know, and I walked walked up to the stage door, and there's a stage manager there and everything, and just walked over and grabbed a grabbed a mic stand off the back of the truck and and walked it in, and went back out, grabbed a, a little box of like you know mic cords or something, and did that like three or four times, and then I was in, and it it worked. It worked so many times. It worked time after time after time. Um, so that's that's that was my bridge from this small town in Michigan to getting up the nerve to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to go and immerse myself in this world. And so that's uh, that's what I did, uh, L.A. when I was twenty. I was so, so ill-prepared. I, I had been there for maybe, maybe a week. And I decided, okay, I have to go down to the Hollywood uh, Musicians Union and see what this is all about, you know, see if I can make some connections and stuff. I remember I went downstairs into the basement and there was a, a big band rehearsal going on. They have the door open because it's, you know, it's blazing hot down there. And they're just doing this rehearsal. And there's this guy with, you know, with his tenor sax on a stand. And, and he's just slumping in a chair, smoking a pipe while this rehearsal is going on. And I'm listening. The band is kicking. <laughs> and he, he takes his pipe and puts, puts it on the music stand at one point and reaches over, picks up the sax and straps it on. And still laying back, slumped in his chair, just blew the most blazing sax solo I had ever heard, effortlessly. I remember being just awestruck and defeated at the same time, realizing that, no, these were world-class players. I, you know, I had stepped into something that I was absolutely not prepared for. But I was picking up whatever I could, and there just wasn't any any work. And it, it got to a point where I, I just had to make a living, just to be able to stay there and not, not move back to Michigan and lose face, you know, uh, because I was the one who got out. Talk about transformational moments. You know, sometimes they're sometimes they're nice and perfectly laid out as if as if planned, and sometimes they're train wrecks. And this was this was my train wreck. This was my my bottom. I was you know driving a delivery vehicle in in Skid Row and, and the Jewelry District and the Garment District and just all over L.A. And I would, I was doing a lot of drinking. And so I would drink to, to 
you know, to put myself to sleep at night. And, um, and I get up in the morning and take, you know, take, uh, you know, little white pills and stuff to, to get me going. Sometimes like a handful and, uh, you know, and drinking, drinking coffee and taking these pills. And I remember I was, I was just, I was in this frenetic state. And so I would rush through everything. I was driving very recklessly and everything. I came around a corner and, and realized as I swung around the corner that there was like a shadow of a person in front of me and I just brushed past them and, and I looked over as they fell away from my truck. I, I could see this like horror on their face, you know, this terror. And <laughs> I still see that face today. I will always see that face. As I, as I continued to drive, I looked in the rearview rear mirror, and he's cursing me. He's okay, and you know, he was he was just uh, one of the guys on Skid Row, you know. And uh, but in a way, he's he's the guy who saved my life, you know, because almost almost running this guy over, almost killing this guy was the thing that made me say, I can't, I can't keep, keep going like this. And so I drove to, <laughs> drove, drove the truck to my therapist's office and, uh, and just sat in the waiting room until she would see me. And she, she came to see me and I, I gave her the keys to the truck and said, I'm done. And that afternoon, I was checked into a hospital. And I was there for about 10 months. I was having, having suicidal feelings. I was having even, even homicidal feelings at times. I was just had all this rage inside um, that was unresolved. And so, so I had to take that time. And fortunately... I had insurance that allowed me that time. I just stopped my life, said, no, I have to fix this. And I had, had this sense that if I didn't fix it, I wouldn't be able to live out, you know, my purpose or even find what that purpose was. And I had a boss who kept my job for all that time. And... Um, and in fact, welcomed me back when I left. I, w I was so blessed with just wonderful people. There were these angels that just kept appearing, you know, that, that were just wonderful. That's, that's a thing, that's a theme for me, is, the, is these angels who pop up. <laughs> and sometimes it's a very mystical thing. And other times it's like that guy I almost killed. To me, in my memory, this is the guy who helped me, 
who helped me turn that that metaphorical corner in my life as I almost killed him turning the corner with the truck. And I imagine, you know, in, in my musings, I imagine maybe I had the same effect on him. I don't know. I got back on my feet. And I was at this for a long time. I mean, I was, I was getting my act together for the good part of a decade. And I got to a point where I, I was feeling, feeling really grounded and, and assessing my life and saying, you know, there were problems, you know, some of the stuff I did with music I did for the wrong reasons and, and all that, but I still loved music. And I, there was still a big part of me that wanted to be there because those are my people, that's my tribe. So I decided I'm going to go for it again. And at that point in time, I was pretty clear that, yeah, it wasn't going to be as a musician. I just wasn't that good. So I decided that uh, I still like putting music together. I like the studio aspect of it, you know, putting the pieces of a song together and working with musicians. So I thought, okay, I could be a, like like a, an engineer or a producer or something. So I took a bunch of classes. Uh, at Cal State LA and UCLA and and I met this guy he was one of my teachers he was a a, a record record uh, production teacher And, and he was a serious working musician this guy was a monster player and we we hit it off and he helped me put together my production demo so that I could show my skills as a producer. <laughs> and um, I, I decided, okay, now I need to, I need to find somewhere where I can, you know, work my way into the business and, and do this record producing thing. And again, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just went for it anyway. And I remembered that there was this guy who I had met a couple times in passing in back in Kalamazoo. So I figured if I could if I could get this tape to him, since he had become a producer, a really hot pop producer, that maybe, you know, maybe there could be some work there. But I didn't know how to reach him, but I knew he he had a studio in San Francisco and I knew he was from Kalamazoo. And I figured he's got to still have some family there, you know. So I went back to my my old childhood ways, my tricks, and started cold calling. <laughs> so I called and called and called, and then I got his mother. <laughs> I said, I'm going to be in San Francisco on business. And I was really hoping, hoping to... Um, connect while I was up there but I don't have any of his current contact information or anything and so she just assumed I was an old friend she said oh baby just a minute let me get it <laughs> so so she gave me the the address to his studio and his and the telephone number to the studio 
So I drove up, <laughs> I rented a car, you know, booked a hotel room, you know, spending all kinds of money I didn't have. And uh, I was going to take this tape. I was going to get in that door somehow. <laughs> so I drove up there, found the studio. It was just around the corner from San Quentin. Found a phone booth and called the number. And uh, now this guy was, he was huge at the time. And, you know, he was just in this incredible zone as a producer. Uh, so I so I called him, and he had like 10 people working for him in the studio. But for some reason, when I called, he picked up the phone. So I just I just went to work. I just started started to talk my talk my behind off. He said, "So where are you now? What are you doing?" I said, "Well, I'm just up the street in a phone booth." He said, "Here in San Rafael." And so he reluctantly asked me if I wanted to come down. I said, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. <laughs> so I uh, I drove down to the studio, and he met me at the door. And the first words out of his mouth, you know, as I was walking through the door, he says, so what do you have for me? <laughs> so I reach in my pocket, and I hand him this this cassette tape of my, my three little uh, uh, musical pieces. And uh, he... he put it immediately into a boombox there in the lobby and listen to, oh, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 seconds of it, <laughs> turned it off and handed it back to me. Uh, oh, man. Okay, so is this how it's all going to end? <laughs> all this stuff, all the classes, all the studio time, all this stuff. He was my best bet to get in with, with a production team. And um, and he was clearly not not interested. He knew that I wasn't I wasn't up to up to their level. But he was nice, and he said, "Hey, look, you want to come back and see what we're doing?" So I, you know, followed him down this dark hallway to the control room, and and there was this this little guy hunched over a piano in one of the booths, and he walked over to that that room. He slid the door open. And he stuck his his head in and said to the guy inside. He says, he says, uh, says, I want you to meet Steve. He's from Kalamazoo. He's a writer. You guys talk. <laughs> and then he and then he turned to me and he said, he said, this guy is the is the songwriter of the 90s. You guys need to work it out. And then he left. So we talk, you know, these two socially awkward musical geeks trying to carry on a conversation. <laughs> And uh, it's going nowhere. And so in my head, I'm tallying up all the money I've spent and, you know, say, well, this I'm just going to have to write this whole thing off, you know, as an experience. And so I'm starting to say my goodbyes. And I, I get one foot out the door, literally. And he says, so do you write lyrics? I said, yeah. I had never written a lyric in my life. <laughs> So he reaches over to, to his desk and picks up this cassette tape. He's going, I have these three songs. I need lyrics. And I just I need these things done. I said, cool. So I, you know, I took the cassette. I said, so when do you need them? 
He said, tape rolls tomorrow at noon. So here I am with, with the opportunity to write the first three songs of my life. And I have about 18 hours to do it. <laughs> So I drove up and parked under a streetlight in front of an all-night diner so I could keep the coffee flowing, stay, stay awake while I hammer out these songs. Now, I had no idea how to write a song. I'd never, I never paid attention to lyrics because I was so into the music. But here I am being asked to write the lyrics to these songs. And it was, they were completed songs. They were studio quality with a la-la melody over the top and a title and a song title. So I had to create these stories around a song title to match the melody. I didn't know what to do, so I just went by the seat of my pants and said, what would a writer do? You know, How logically would they go about it? So I just wrote and I wrote and I wrote until I fell asleep. Woke up the next morning the lyrics are crumpled at my feet and I, I pick them up and you know flatten them out the the sun is the sun is high in the sky and i still have two verses to write so i crank them out really quick and um and hit the road i get there about 20 after 12 they've been there they're just waiting for me you know the music is up on the monitors uh, the vocalist is all warmed up, waiting in the vocal booth. And, and this, this writer is across the room, you know, nervously, I'm, I'm sure, imagining, you know, the, the extra money he's going to have to pay for the studio time because he doesn't have lyrics for these songs. And he sees me walk through the door. <laughs> says, so do you have it? Do you have it? And I just raised up this, you know, this legal pad, this crumpled legal pad <laughs> with the lyrics just cooler than I had any business being. And he, he rushed over and took it from me and read through the first one and flipped the page real quick and started reading through the second song. And, you know, started to slow down and then slowly turned the page and read the third. And uh, just sat there for a second and then turned to me and said, Cool. Walked out into the studio, put put this pad on the music stand, and and taught this singer the the melody, you know, to show her how the words would go with the song. And uh, so those three songs ended up being the first three of over two hundred songs we wrote together. That was what launched me into this career that consumed the next ten or fifteen years of my life. Never had I set my sights on being a lyricist. I never imagined that. But I found that it was the perfect thing for what I had been prepared for in life. I set the intention, but when you set the intention, one of the, one of the tricks to that is that, that you can't be rigid about it. You set your intention and you release it 
to the universe, for, to whatever is going to happen, whatever door swings open for you. I was on this journey to, to reawaken this childhood dream of being in the music business. And I thought I knew where I was going, but I didn't. And that's, and that's happened to me so many times in life that I've, I've come to really trust it. That's the key of moving in a direction, but not being rigid about it. You know, releasing, releasing expectations of the destination, but move in the direction of where you think you want to go. And then that's when the surprises happen. That's when those doors swing open. I have to go back a little bit. My immediate family, my father and us kids, we were like black sheep in the family. We were really different. But I always, it always bothered me that I didn't know why we were so different. And then we had a, a grandfather who I did not connect with at all. He was this, he was this beloved doctor. Um, he delivered me, and I never connected with him. When I, was, when I was probably 16 years old, my dad pulled me aside and explained to me that my grandpa was not the, his birth father, that he was, he was his stepfather, and that my father had been adopted when, when his stepfather you know, married my grandmother. It was, it was apparently very serious for my dad, and don't bring it up because it really upsets your grandmother and, you know, and all this, all this is subterfuge, you know, there, all this stuff. It was apparently a chapter in her life that she just wanted to bury. I knew that my dad was really, he was really wounded when his father left him. He was nine years old. His dad left, and he was never heard from again. But, uh, you know, I, I wanted to help my dad find what happened to this guy. And I, I imagine from the way my grandmother tightened up and got angry whenever the subject would come up, I just assumed that this guy probably just died homeless under a bridge, you know, somewhere. But I continued to help my dad look. You know, and his name, his name was Joe Miller. We didn't know what state he was in. But years into this, after, after helping my dad search, like every five years or so, I'm, I'm grown. And I'm, I'm on the phone with my brother. We're having this conversation. And we're finishing up the conversation. He said, oh, yeah. He said, uh, did you hear about the circus picture? It's like, huh? <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, there's, Larry found a circus picture. And Larry was a guy who was my parents' best friends. He introduced them to each other and everything. So 
what happened was he had he was down in Florida and he was going through a local yard sale. He came across a stack of New Yorker magazines, you know, for a nickel apiece. So he bought the whole stack to have something to read while he was down there. And he opens up one of these New Yorker magazines to see this picture, a class picture of the sideshow from the Barnum and Bailey Ringling Brothers Combined Circus. And there's a guy down in the corner who my dad's best friend said looked just like my dad looked when he met him in college. And he was doing a contortion that my dad used to do when he was in college. It's like when they met, when these two guys met, my dad and his roommate, you know, they're getting to know each other. My dad says, yeah, they tell me that my grandfather was a contortionist in the circus. And look, I can do some tricks too. And he, he disjointed his shoulders and crossed his arms behind his head, you know, with his arms sticking out straight the wrong way. And there's this picture of this guy looking like my dad doing that same contortion in this picture from Madison Square Garden, you know, 1929. It's entitled The Congress of Freaks. And I'm doing Google searches to try and find something. Boom, there's, there's a posting from a circus genealogy bulletin board where people are looking for their relatives from the circus. There are no responses to this posting that was posted like six years prior to my seeing it. It's just sitting out there. And this woman is looking for, I think her great uncle Lan or her uncle Lan or something, who was double jointed. <laughs> so I write to her and it's, it's after midnight and the house was totally asleep. And there's this email from a woman who says, I can't believe it. Seems like every year at Christmas, another relative finds me. She was in her early 70s. She had been a lifelong genealogist who had done the whole family tree, but it had run cold at her uncle Ann, my great-grandfather that leg of the tree. So she writes this letter back to me, tells me what she knows, and um, and I start, and I'm starting to close this thing down, and, and I notice that there's an attachment to the email. So I open it back up, click on the attachment. It opens up. <laughs> And there's this, there's this picture, this sepia tone picture of a little boy, probably four years old, who looks exactly like I looked at that age. And written in calligraphy underneath the, the image, says Master Joseph Dustin Miller. This was the first picture I ever saw of my grandfather. And I'm, at this point, I'm, you know, I'm well into my 40s when I see this for the first time. And I'm just, 
it was it was one of these moments where everything became very surreal it was a very unreal feeling as i'm sitting there looking into the eyes of this of this child from you know generations before me and I, I i get a sense that my wife is coming down the stairs and i call her name and she doesn't answer and and i so i look up from the picture and that's when i saw that's when i saw the ancestors gathering gathering like they would around a street performer with little kids trying to see between legs and between between people to see what's going on as I'm <laughs> as I'm reconnecting with this with this lost generation in my life I mean and it was and it was filmy and and it was just light but it was clearly people and they were there for the moment so the next morning I write right to the woman she writes right back and she introduces me to a couple of people and they introduce me to a couple of people And I'm doing more and more searches now that I know, I know where he was. He left in, in Prohibition, Chicago. The grandfather, turns out, was, was a an MC in vaudeville and burlesque, and we would tell corny jokes, and you know, it's like, it's like he would. He would take a piece of bread out, you know, and he'd he'd say, "Now I'm gonna sing." A pretty girl is like a melody, and he'd put it in his pocket. He'd come to the end of the song, he'd pull out a piece of toast. <laughs> it's just really bad, corny vaudeville stuff. This man, who was who was a vaudeville burlesque entertainer, had had a, a knockdown, dragout fight with my grandmother because he caught her with the grandfather I knew growing up. They had this fight. He disappeared, was never heard from again. Nearly 70 years, never heard from. And she would never help along the way, help us put it together. So I break the code. The code is broken with this circus picture. You know, That's, that's the thing that lit me up to search again and to search with passion. Things started falling into place like, you know, they talk about, about you know, moving in the direction of, of your passion and the universe will conspire to support you. I felt like I was, like I was riding a wave and like I was having all these... At the time, I, I referred to them as rolling epiphanies because it was like everyone I talked to, every turn, every email I received, there were all these people welcoming me to my connection to my family, people who knew my grandfather, people who loved my grandfather, 
So there's all this, all this stuff is emerging, and it's all emerging. I'm telling you, from the moment I opened that picture in the email to see that picture of my grandfather, that little four-year-old boy, to five weeks later, I've met all these people, and all these people come together to celebrate what would have been his 100th birthday. And I was the guest of honor. All these mystical experiences started coming at me. It was this season of awakening for me that changed everything. But I learned through this experience and connecting with these aunts and uncles that had no idea I existed or my dad existed. I was able to bring them all together and find and find the, and find a place for healing those wounds for reconciliation for reconnection and ultimately I believe to heal those wounds for those who had long passed there was so much damage through the generations, so much disconnection, so much pain, that it needed to be healed. It needed to be healed for all those who are living today who struggled with their, with their strained relationships with their father. You know, this man who, who abandoned my father. And for all the generations to come, that happened very miraculously. It just happened. It fell in my lap. The one person who was best equipped because it meant so much to me to solve the mysteries for my dad and also because I, w I was the one who was who had become now a wordsmith, you know, through my lyric writing and all of that. You know, so I, I didn't know how to write a book, but I knew enough to get a start. And imagine what a writer would do, <laughs> just like I did with the, with the lyrics. And so I, I started doing it, and more things started coming, and I started getting visited by spirit and by earthly angels who had a piece of the puzzle to bring to me. So I'm taking pieces of that, stringing all those experiences together. Those things I didn't feel like I was, I was worthy enough to tackle. Now who am I to say I'm a, you know, a writer? or to suggest that I had anything worthwhile to hear. But I'm at the point now where I've had so many experiences and learned so much in life and feel like I've been gifted so much. And now I'm compelled to get to that place where I can share it, share it out. But it was so cool. It's just, it's all very pedestrian. It just happens in, in my life. None of this is sacred. You know, I, I like to have fun with it all. 
No, I don't take myself that seriously. I'll tell you, when I hit 50, that's when I decided that um, that I was I was going to be honest and speak my mind. And when I hit 60, that's when I decided I was if I'm going to if I'm going to share myself, I'm going to share my heart. And I'm not going to do it halfway. I'm going to do the damn thing. You know, my wife says that. Whenever she sees me backing away from something or being cautious, she said, just do the damn thing. That was Steve Birch. That was a pretty cool story about all the stars lining up into place for him. It was. Steve is currently working on a couple of projects. One of them is a book about discovering his family history and all of that. So when when we hear more from Steve, I'll be sure to pass it on. Thank you very much, Steve, for the time that you spent. You were very generous with your time, and I had a lot of fun talking to you. Next time, we'll talk to Clay Boykin, who was the founder of the Circle of Men Project in North Austin. We'll see you next time on Caterpillar Goo. Bye. Bye.